Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you in worship again on this Lord's Day. And I want to say thank you for worshiping the Lord through song. And now let's worship through the word, shall we? If you haven't done so already, I want to invite you now to take your listening outline from your worship guide, get a pen in hand. And if you have a copy of the Bible, open it in the New Testament to the little book of 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. And as you see on your outline, I've entitled today's message message, encouragement and instruction, encouragement and instruction about how to live until Jesus comes again. Now, as we're preparing to hear the word here in the worship center, I want to offer just a warm, warm welcome to everyone in our contemporary service today. I'm really glad you're here, as well as those of you who are joining on TV and online. We're really glad you're part of today's service as well. Now, as we begin this morning, I've got a couple of questions. The first one is pretty straightforward. I think it'll be an easy response. How many of you want to go to heaven? Can I just see your hand? You want to go to heaven? Okay, almost a unanimous response around the room. Uh, there was a pastor once who asked the same question, and most everybody raised their hand, but he couldn't help but notice a little boy on the front row didn't raise his hand. So he thought, maybe he didn't hear. He asked again. Sure enough, everybody raised their hand. This kid still didn't raise his hand. The pastor was disturbed by it. So he sort of leaned down, and he said, Son, uh, he said, I noticed you didn't raise your hand. Don't you want to go to heaven? He said, oh, yes, sir, I want to go. I just thought you might be getting a load up to go today. And so he said, I, I don't want to go today. I want to go eventually. And some of us would feel that way. We would say, that's me. I have some more living to do. I, I, I love my family. I want to provide for them. All kinds of things we would say. But we want to go to heaven when we die. Now, if you were here last week, you know that as we looked at 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, we sort of teased out what the Bible teaches about when we die, but it also teaches us about what happens when Jesus comes again at the end of the age. And so look on your outline. I've summarized last week in just this way. Do you see it? If I am a follower of Christ, the Bible says, when I die, my spirit, my soul departs from my body and is immediately at home with the Lord. And so the Bible teaches that if we're in Christ, when we breathe our last here and think our last thought in this life, our very next moment is in the presence of the Lord. Carried there, Luke 16 says, by the angels. Our body's still here, though, until the end of the age when Jesus comes. So look at it. It says, when Jesus comes again, that's when we will receive our resurrection bodies. They will be like the resurrection body of Jesus, imperishable, immortal, and along with other Christ followers, we will be with the Lord forever. And so it means we experience something at death. Our spirit, our soul goes immediately to be with the presence of the Lord. And then our salvation is completed. Uh, we are glorified. We receive our resurrection body 
at the coming of the Lord. It means there's another chapter in our salvation, and it occurs at the end of the age. So that leads me to my second question today, and that is, how many of you are glad that the game's not over at the end of the third quarter? Can I see your hand if that's true? You, yeah, I think so, right? I mean, we all have a sense of that, and maybe more this morning than usual. And so, what does that mean? Well, personally, it means that if you're alive today, uh, there's, there's more yet to your story. And it may be that the most significant things in your life occur in the last quarter or in the last part of your life, however many more days the Lord gives to you. The other thing that the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians teach us by focusing on the return of Christ is it reminds us that the game of life that we're in is not in a circle, it's not cyclical, instead it's linear, it has a beginning and an end, and the end will come, the final horn will sound, the horn will blow, the trumpet will sound, the voice of the archangel will shout when Jesus comes again at the end of the age. So the Apostle Paul in First and Second Thessalonians is, is orienting those first believers and us, not only to the end of our lives, but to the end of the age. Now, today we come to the little book of 2 Thessalonians. It's really short. It's only three chapters. And why 2 Thessalonians? Well, it's because uh, it was a part of our chapter a day readings this last week. And if you're not in that journey yet, you can pull out your phone right now, wherever you are, text the word chapter to 22828, sign up with your email address and join in with hundreds of us as we're reading God's word every day and applying it to our lives. So as we read through 2 Thessalonians this last week, um, we probably... Uh, took away, one of the big things was some encouragement. So I hope, I'm just hoping, before we're done today, in your heart, in your soul, in your spirit, in your walk with Christ, if you're a Christ follower, you're going to be encouraged. One of the second things we see is some instruction about how to live before we're done. There's going to be some very practical, down-to-earth instruction. Can I also say, though, that here in just a moment, they're going to be some rather sobering kinds of words from Scripture that it's important for us to hear and to take account of today. You know, um, it, it reminds me of the value, really, of reading all of the Scripture, a chapter a day like we do it, because it means we get the full diet spiritually. We don't just pull out the parts that we like. Instead, we hear all the words of Scripture, and as a result, we're formed, we're shaped, our mind, our heart, our person with the full truth of God. Because you see, what we're about at Ingleside is, is not just drawing a crowd, and it's not just offering some 
superficial sunshine of encouragement that might see you through a little while. Oh, no. We want to make disciples, disciples that are deeply rooted, that have steel in their spiritual spine, who are rooted in the truth, who grow to full maturity and are able to stand when the tough times come for the glory of the Lord. In order to be that kind of disciple, you have to hear not only the easy parts, but also some of the challenging parts. So with that little bit of intro, I want to see if I can tease out of 2 Thessalonians a handful, five truths today, see if we can apply them to our lives. Are you ready? Got your pen in hand? Let's take a go at it. Write it in. Here's the first truth. Until Jesus comes again, this passage teaches us that God intends for these three things to happen. He intends for our faith to grow, our faith to grow, not static, not stale, not stuck, but growing. He intends for our love for other believers to increase. It means we're to be in relationship with other believers who will encourage us and we them. And number three, he intends for our steadfastness is the way the ESV translates this word. It could be our perseverance to be strong and true. Now, some of you will say, okay, show it to me in the Bible, pastor. So look at it, verse one. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice the encouraging words here. Paul has planted this church just a few months before, during his second missionary journey. He's now in Corinth. He's writing back to Thessalonica, and he's wanting to encourage these new young believers. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. It means brothers and sisters, as is right, because, look, he's saying, I'm really proud of you. I, I see this in you. I want to encourage you in this. He says, look, your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God and for your steadfastness, your perseverance and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. You see, the apostle Paul knew they were paying a price for following Jesus and yet they were still believing, still loving, still persevering, and he said, way to go. Keep on doing that. In fact, do you see it in chapter 2, verse 15? He says, same phrase we read a few weeks ago. So then, brothers, stand firm, stand strong. Don't go wobbly. Stick by the stuff. Now, why did he put such an emphasis on perseverance, steadfastness, keeping on? Well, I think the Apostle Paul knew, and we ought to know, that spiritual fruit is produced in our lives. Faith grows, love increases, character is changed only over time. It does not happen immediately. I read this week a story about a guy who once bought a house 
had a tree in the backyard, and it was wintertime. Nothing marked this tree as any different or special from any of the others, so he didn't take great notice. But when springtime came, the tree grew leaves. They were tiny pink buds on it as well. And he thought, wow, now this guy didn't know a lot about plants or trees or anything, but he just thought, wow, that's beautiful. How wonderful, a flower tree. I'll enjoy its beauty all summer long. But before he had time to enjoy the flowers, the wind began to blow. And soon all those pretty pink buds and petals were blown off the tree and were strewn across the yard. And he thought, well, what a mess. This tree isn't of any use after all. He thought negative thoughts about the tree. The summer passed. One day, the man noticed the tree was full of green fruit. It was the size of large nuts. He picked one of the larger ones and he took a bite. And when he did, he said, yuck. He threw it to the ground and he said, what a horrible taste this is. This tree is worthless. Its flowers are so fragile, the wind blows them away. Its fruit is terrible and bitter. You know what? When winter comes, I'm going to cut this tree down. But it was a good thing that the tree did not take much notice of the man. And the tree did not listen to his words. Instead, the tree continued to draw water from the ground and warmth from the sun. And then in the late fall, it produced beautiful, crisp, red apples. Just like you would put in an apple pie. Can't you taste it this morning? And here's the lesson for us. Some of us see our own lives and the lives of others, and we make judgments before the final horn has blown. We see Christians with their early blossoms of happiness, and we think that they should be that way forever. Or we see our own lives, and we remember what it was like when we first trusted Christ, and we think that'll be the way it is forever. But that's not true. Or we see bitterness in the lives of some others or in our own lives when we walk through a season of suffering or great difficulty. And in our own soul, we feel like that we will never bear again the better fruit of joy. But the Apostle Paul is saying to those first believers and saying to us, if by God's grace, you will grow in faith and increase in love and persevere in the last quarter before the final horn in the next chapters of your life, God will produce good fruit for your own good and for his great glory. And so now listen, brothers and sisters, don't give up. Stay in the race, persevere, be steadfast, stand firm all the way to the end. That's the first message today. I hope you'll be challenged by it. Here's the second big truth I want to highlight. Are you ready? Write it in. This little book teaches us that God intends for us to be encouraged. If we're in Christ, God intends for us to be encouraged by the fact that a day is coming when justice will be done. 
A day is coming when justice will be done. Now, I don't have to convince you today that our world is broken, do I? I don't have to persuade you that things are not as God intended them to be. You know, uh, one of the songs we sing often here at Ingleside is, is one that begins with a call and response. It's antiphonal in its, uh, in its method. And, 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 and the soloist sings, do you sense the world is broken? And what do we sing back? We do. Do you sense that things are not like they ought to be? Do you see injustice around you? And you go, that's not right. That's wrong. Somebody ought to do something about that. It looks like the wicked are prospering and the godly are suffering. So what do you do when you feel that and you sense that? Well, the Apostle Paul says to those believers in Thessalonica who were feeling that, he says, look at verse 5, this is evidence. What is evidence? Your faith, your love, your steadfastness is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're also suffering. In other words, it's, it's not unusual for those who follow Christ to suffer because of their commitment to the king. Verse 6, since indeed God considers it just, watch this, to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. So in other words, the Lord says, now listen, I know you feel the sting of wrong and the sting of injustice and the suffering that's in this broken world. But there is going to be a day when God makes things right. There's going to be a day when justice is going to be done. And those who are harming you now because of your faith in Christ, God will afflict. When is that going to occur? Look at the end of verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. A day is coming when Jesus is coming again with mighty angels. What will it be like? Look at verse 8. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And they, those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because of our testimony to you as believed. To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is this scripture saying? It's a sobering message really. It's an encouraging message for those who are in Christ. But it is a sobering message for those who are not. 
So at the end of the age, when Jesus comes, when justice is done, write it in, two things will happen. God will rescue his people. God will rescue his people. He will deliver us. He will gather us to himself. He will vindicate us. He will glorify us. God will rescue his people, and this passage teaches us that God will punish he will punish those who reject the gospel and who afflict his people, and it will be the punishment of eternal destruction. So now look right up here. I would assume on a Sunday morning at Ingleside that most in this room would say if asked, I am trusting Jesus, I am following him, by God's grace, I have repented and believed, and I'm trusting Jesus as my Savior. And oh, I look forward to his coming because he will gather me to himself. But now listen, if you yet shake your fist in the face of God, if you still refuse his authority, if you have not received and trusted Christ, if you still oppose in your heart and spirit the message of salvation in Jesus Christ, if Jesus came again today, you would experience the punishment of eternal destruction. Sometimes, human experience confirms the truth of Scripture. I read this week about an interesting study done by a cardiologist at the University of Tennessee. In the course of his emergency room work, Dr. Maurice Rawlings and his colleagues a number of years ago interviewed more than 300 people who claimed near-death experiences. What made Dr. Rawlings' study distinct is that the interviews were not conducted months or years later, but they were conducted immediately after the experiences had allegedly occurred, while the patients were still too shaken up in the immediacy of the moment to gloss over or to reimagine what they had just experienced. Here's what the results of the study were. Nearly 50% of those near-death experiences, the people reported, listen, encountering images of fire, of tormented and tormented, tormenting creatures, and other sights hailing from a place very different from heaven. It's interesting that in follow-up interviews much later, many of these same people had changed their stories, apparently unwilling to admit to their families or maybe even to themselves that they had caught a glimpse of something like what the Bible calls the punishment of eternal destruction or what the Bible calls hell. Dr. Rawlings concluded, quote, just listening to these patients has changed my life. There is a life after death 
And if I don't know where I'm going, he wrote, it's not safe to die. And if you don't know and follow Jesus today, it's not safe to die. And with everything that is in me, I want to implore you. I want to urge you. I want to beseech you. I want to challenge you. I want to call you to turn from sin. By God's grace, repent of it. Put your trust in Jesus because in him there is eternal life and apart from him there is eternal death. Oh, trust him. Trust him today. Well, that's not where we will end this morning because the little book of 2 Thessalonians goes on. I want to give you the third insight quickly, write it in, and that is that God intends for us not to be disturbed or deceived by false teaching related to Jesus' return. This is in chapter 2. I'll just read the first two or three verses. It says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect the day of the Lord has come. In other words, he was saying a lot of people are going to try to confuse you about the coming of Christ at the end of the age. Don't be disturbed by that. And verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come. And then he outlines the things that have to happen before Jesus comes again. I just want to say this morning, don't be disturbed and don't be deceived by all the false teaching that's still around today about the coming of Christ. Measure it all by the truth of Scripture. Then Paul concludes the letter by giving a very practical word. Look at it. It's number four on your outline. Write it in. And that is, having taught them the truth, he gives them some practical exhortation. He says, God intends for us not to be, write it in, not to be idle, not I-D-O-L, but I-D-L-E. God intends for us not to be idle, but to have an exemplary work ethic and until Jesus comes again to actually earn our own living, to work hard and to provide for ourselves. You say, is that really in the Bible? Yes, it is. Look at it. In verse 6, it says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. And then Paul uses his own example. He says, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. Look, it's just a simple command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. 
Now, we all know that the Bible teaches that if there are those who, because of their health situation, cannot uh, provide for themselves, Christian generosity and charity ought to be expressed so that there's love and provision made for those who can't care for themselves. But do you know what the Bible says? It's really interesting to me that it appears in this little book. It says, if you're able to work, you ought to work. And if you're able to work and you don't work, then you ought not to get to eat. You ought to provide for yourself. You know, this week as I was studying this passage, I came across a letter that one of our former presidents, Abraham Lincoln, wrote to his stepbrother, a guy named John Johnston in 1850. And his stepbrother, John Johnston, had written to Abraham Lincoln asking him yet again for a loan of some money so he could settle some debts. On previous occasions, Lincoln had simply given his, his stepbrother Johnston the money, but this time he decided to respond with a tough love letter that included a helpful proposal. Do you want to hear Lincoln's letter? I thought you would. Let me read it to you. Here's what he said. He said, Dear Johnston, your request for $80, I do not think it best to comply with now. At the various times when I have helped you a little, you have said to me, we can get along very well now. But in a very short time, I find you in the same difficulty again. Now this can only happen by some defect in your conduct. What that defect is, I think I know. You're not lazy, and still you are an idler. I doubt whether since I saw you, you've done a good whole day's work in any one day. This habit of uselessly wasting time is the whole difficulty. It's vastly important to you and still more so to your children that you should break the habit. You're now in need of some money and what I propose is this, that you go to work tooth and nail for somebody who will give you money for it and to secure you a fair reward for your labor. I now promise you that for every dollar you will, between this and the 1st of May, get for your own labor, I will then give you one other dollar. And now if you will do this, you will soon be out of debt. And what is better, you will have a habit that will keep you from getting in debt again. But if I should now clear you out of debt, next year you would be just as deep in as ever, affectionately, your brother, Abraham Lincoln. So what do you think about Lincoln's letter? I think he may have been reading 2 Thessalonians because guess what it says? We're to each work quietly and earn our own living. I think Thomas Edison probably read this chapter too he once said, opportunity is missed by most people because opportunity is dressed in overalls and looks like work. And so today, the Lord is saying to you and me, trust and follow Christ. Be prepared for your death and the end of the age. And until Jesus comes, 
Do your own work. Earn your own way. Don't sponge off of others. Do the work that God has given you to do. And then the book concludes just with some encouragement. Write it in. God will sustain us by his grace and for his glory all the way to the end of the age. Uh, Look at it. I mean, it, it runs like a river through these three chapters. He says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Do you see what God does? He comforts us. He gives us hope. He establishes us. Look in chapter three. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Look at this, verse 3, I love it. It says, but the Lord is faithful and will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And then at the very end of the letter, as for you brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. If anyone doesn't obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Listen, church family, nobody really knows what's ahead for the church of the Lord Jesus. But it is likely to have seasons of suffering and injustice in it. And when those seasons come, oh man, the truths of 2 Thessalonians ought to be ringing in our ears. I'm going to lead us in a prayer and then we'll sing our concluding song. And especially if you have never trusted Christ, oh listen, I want you to pray with me and I want you to call out to the Lord. Ask him to forgive your sin and to save you by his grace. Let's pray together now. Father, thanks for your word today that speaks to us so practically. It also gives us such encouragement and hope and such challenge. Thank you for it. And Lord, I pray right now for a boy or a girl or a teenager or a young adult or someone in the middle years or someone in the last quarter. If you came today, they would experience eternal destruction. Help them right now cry out to you and say, oh Lord, I need you, please save me. Please forgive my sins. I want to trust and follow Jesus and I receive him as my Lord. Lord, I want you to change my mind, change my heart, change my life, bring me into line with your word, I want to live for your glory and I commit my life to you today. Father, I know you hear that kind of cry and you answer. And I want to thank you for that and thank you that you've saved many today as they have heard and responded to your word. Lord, we love you and I pray you would encourage us now as we sing our last song together and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.